sgp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, and if you're a first-time listener, for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. Maybe there's an issue in your personal life or ministry or family and you'd like biblical counsel. If we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone. Again, locally, it's 843-525-1859, 525-1859, area code 843. And for our uh, Internet listeners, we have a toll-free number. You can use anywhere in the United States, and that number is 877. The call letters WHEP. 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question to Deb, and she'll shoot it to us here in the studio. You can also email us here directly at TBL for the Bible line, TBL at net. Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started today. All right, we've got a question that came in at the very tail end of our program last week. A listener wanted to know who Jesus is talking to. On the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is prefaced uh, in chapter 5 and verse 1. The Sermon on the Mount, as St. Augustine uh, gave it that title, uh, because it's on a mountain, so to speak, uh, not how we would maybe define a mountain like Everest or Washington or one of those, but it says, but when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him and opening his mouth, he began to teach them. So beginning in five, all the way through six and into chapter seven, he's addressing the multitudes. And of course, the section that you're asking specifically, if you'll scroll down, I can't see it there, Rick. Um, he's asking verses 21 through 23. Uh, he's dealing with false teachers. And in this section, he is uh, exhorting them to evaluate some of the people that would teach them. There were many Jewish teachers of the day, some who became believers, some who were not. And largely, no doubt he has the Pharisees in mind, and he warns them, beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And this, of course, is instruction for all time, all the way until Jesus comes, because later on, of course, in the Olivet Discourse, he will speak again of an increase of false prophets as we move through the end of time. Uh, They will look Christian, they will talk Christian, but they're really not Christian. And so that takes discernment on our part. And that's something, unfortunately, the church lacks in our day because they're so undertaught. They really do not know what the word of God says. And this is why one of the principal duties of a pastor is to preach the word. Forty-five times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to preach sound doctrine. The word sound is the Greek word for healthy. It's actually a medical term in the first century. Preach healthy doctrine. And so these people that he is speaking of, 
are people who outwardly look Christian. And so he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who's in heaven. And the parallel account, uh, what we might call the Sermon on the Plain and Luke's gospel. um, And of course, Jesus would teach many things over and over and over again because the audience would change. But the gospel is the gospel. I preach the gospel over and over and over again because I always have a new audience and new people that I need to reach. And so we're not surprised. It's not that Jesus didn't have anything to say, but there are some non-negotiables. And so in Luke's account, in, in Luke six forty six, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? And here's the amazing thing when he describes these people. He said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name perform many miracles? You would think that that would be a stellar testimony. Oh, they preached in the name of Jesus. Not only did they preach in the name of Jesus, uh, we are told they cast out demons in Jesus's name. And not only did they do that, but they performed even miracles. Well, look, the devil can do all three to deceive and not to mention that there is power in Jesus's name. But with that said, you'd think, oh, these are the, this is a spirit filled ministry. This person is, has just a stellar ministry that we should ascribe to. But then Jesus will say to them, well, actually, uh, I never knew you. Why does he say that? He didn't know like who they were, who their name was. No, he's the omniscient God. But remember, this is eternal life, Jesus said in John 17, 3, that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All men know of God's existence. That's a given in the Bible, but not all men know God personally. So sometimes in uh, our Bible-believing churches, we say, well, does he know the Lord? Or someone will say, I've come to know the Lord as my Savior. Uh, There is an intimacy there that transpires. And there is many people who know even the plan of salvation, but they don't know Christ personally. So he, he's describing really the fruit of these false teachers who look Christian, smell Christian, but you could certainly take it and apply it to anyone who names the name of Christ, but doesn't know the Lord personally. You can't go simply by some of their outward actions. There are issues of the heart, which, by the way, is something that he highlights all the way through this chapter. And so one of the critical uh, verses in the whole Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 and verse 26. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. Most people would think, well, wow, I mean, they are really righteous people. And outwardly they were, but inwardly they were dead men's bones. And so this is why we need discernment, because, again, he he goes after not some ho-hum kind of testimony, but one of the most spectacular testimonies you could think of. And you say, well, he must be a man of God in light of all that we visibly see. And Jesus said, don't be so quickly fooled. You need to look close. You know, from a distance, someone may, uh, you know, an apple tree may look great, but when you get up close and you, you look at the worms and the apples and the disease there, you say, oh, that's not what I thought. And so um, I have a whole message on this. You might want to uh, listen to it at searchthescriptures.org and go click on the Matthew icon and you'll see a whole message, an hour long message on your, your question. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Rosemary from Beaufort writes, I need spiritual guidance in the area of marriage 
and church attendance. I left a church that helped me grow spiritually to attend my husband's family church under his family's pressure. I left my comfort zone. Uh, my husband's grandfather headed the church. We'll get to that just in just a second. We always like to give preference to live callers, and we do have a live caller standing by now. So let's go to them. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Yeah, nice to nice to hear your voice. What's going on? Um, I, I'm just I'm, I'm thinking about this so much with with Perry Noble and Joel Osteen and and actually just a fellow that I work with who's a Methodist, and it's it's just it's troubling to me that Protestant denominations have such a difficult time following the Word of God and believing everything that God has put into the Bible. It just it doesn't make any sense to me that they would stand up in the pulpit and preach heresy uh, and, and, and be apostate. I, 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 I just, I, at times I just don't get it. And I come to CBC, and I hear you, and I hear Pastor Larry, and you open the Word of God, and you preach it, and you explain it, and you teach it, and, and there's no apostasy. They're just the Word of God. How, I just, I don't, I don't understand. I mean, pastors, I know by Scripture, are held to a higher standard than, than the average layman would be, because they are out there teaching the Word of God. Pastor, are they just ignorant, or, or don't they get it? I, I don't understand. Well, it's a good question. Uh, there, there are two principal reasons why people embrace error. One is they've never heard the truth. And so I've, uh, I've led some men, even in the ministry, uh, to Christ. I, I remember many, many years ago, I was eating at a restaurant on Ladies Island, and I was meeting with a Methodist pastor, and I had the opportunity to um, ask him the diagnostic questions, how certain he was if he were to die, he'd go to heaven, and why God should let him into heaven. And he answered both of them incorrectly, and I walked him in that restaurant through the plan of salvation, and by the time we were done, he bowed his head, and he received Christ as his Savior. Uh, and God opened his eyes, and he began to see, oh man, there's some real deficiencies in my own denomination. There are certainly born-again pastors in the United Methodist Church, and there are other Methodist denominations in the country as well, Wesley Methodist, and a number of different denominations, and actually a, a few that are uh, Bible-believing and conservative. But for the most part, when you hear the term Methodist, we're thinking United Methodist. And the United Methodists decades ago officially said the Bible was inspired, but it was not inerrant. So they denied biblical infallibility. And so there are, quote unquote, errors in the Bible. And so all of their own seminaries are very, very liberal. Uh, I attended and took a, a couple language courses at Duke Divinity School. In fact, I was the campus minister for Campus Crusade for five years on the Duke campus. And so I worked with students in the medical school and the law school and the business school, uh, undergraduates and so forth, and some in the divinity school. And I actually had the privilege to lead some uh, divinity students to Christ. You'd think, oh, they're, they must be believers. They're studying to go into the ministry. But of course, that's not always the case. And it was not the case there. But some of the courses I took, you know, at Duke Divinity School, which I could take for free because I was a campus pastor there. Uh, I could audit them. I couldn't get any credit for them, but still, you know, it was, it was fun for me because it helped me to learn the other side a little bit more clearly. But so you, you mentioned Methodists. That's why I bring them up. And 
Uh, there are certainly Bible-believing Methodists, but most have left the denomination. Why? Because uh, they understand the principles of biblical separation. God tells us specifically in his word that there is a time for separation. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that you may put him to shame. So when you link arms with liberals, you basically give endorsement to their theology. That's why there is a time for Christians to separate from those who are less than orthodox in their teaching. Uh, With that said, there's another reason why people have uh, not embraced truth. With that Methodist pastor, he just didn't know the plan of salvation. Led him to Christ. In fact, about uh, a year later, he became a Baptist preacher, which I thought was kind of interesting. But um, there is another reason, and that is people have heard the truth and they've rejected it. And so when people harden their heart against the truth, they end up believing a lie. We, We see that in our day. Uh, There is coming a day that the Bible speaks of where uh, it's going to happen in a widespread way all across the world. There's always been apostasy. Uh, People who walk up to the edge of Christianity, they hear the plan of salvation, they understand it, but they don't respond to it. And so they end up falling away. They've never been born again, never were saved. You can't lose something that's eternal, but they apostatize. They, They fall away. And Jesus speaks of such people in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but there are, you know, people who do that today, but there's coming a day where we will see the apostasy, the apostasy of apostasies. When Paul writes the church at Thessalonica, some had thought maybe they were in the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord begins with the catching up of the church. And it really mimics a, a biblical day. It gets progressively darker and it comes dark as night and then a bright light comes, the sun comes up and then it gets dark again. And the day of the Lord is actually a, a long period of time in the Bible uh, that speaks of the coming tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ from heaven, his visible second coming, distinctly different, of course, from the rapture, followed by the millennial reign of Messiah where it's bright as can be, and then at the end of the millennium, when Satan, who's been changed for a thousand years, is loosed and it gets dark again. So some of them thought, well, maybe we misunderstood you, Paul. Um, We thought the rapture took place before the day of the Lord, and uh, we think we're in the day of the Lord. And it would be, you know, easy for them to think that way, because one of the characteristics of the first part of the day of the Lord is intense persecution on God's people. And these folks were experiencing that. In fact, uh, he, he addresses that in the beginning of the letter um, where he, he warns them. He said, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted into us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So he's reminding them a day will come when God will make every right wrong. But they were not in the day of the Lord. Uh, They hadn't misunderstood him concerning the rapture. That takes place first. And so he said, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord had come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Um, he said, it will not come unless 
not apostasy, but the apostasy. It's articular. He's speaking of a specific apostasy, the apostasy of apostasies. Um, It will not happen unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, Uh, a person who he says exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what the prophet Daniel spoke of that we're going to be studying shortly when we resume Daniel right after Easter. Uh, the prophetic section of Daniel is chapter 7 through 12. And in Daniel 9, he speaks of what Jesus called the abomination of desolation. When the Antichrist goes in and he makes himself out to be God. And the apostasy is going to take place in this time frame. And he reminds us here that the coming of this Antichrist is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. How so? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, for what reason? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence that they might believe what's false. So people are caught up in liberalism. And by liberalism, we're using the term biblically, theologically, someone who believes something that is less than orthodox, they're caught up in it either because they've not heard the truth. And there were people like that. Look, in the book of Acts, you got some, in the 15th chapter, you get some Pharisees being saved. Nicodemus was was saved. He ended up coming to faith. And so there are people who are caught up in in false doctrine because they haven't heard the truth. But when they're challenged with the truth, because their heart is pliable in the hand of God and they're responding to what they know, they respond to the truth. But if someone rejects the truth and it's usually a love of sin that precipitates that or sometimes self-righteousness, there's just the, the opposite of humility. There's an arrogant, proud heart that is unwilling to receive the grace of God because grace comes when someone receives grace, they, they come empty handed as uh, Augustus top lady wrote in the 16th century in that great hymn. He said, nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross. I cling. And so people, for whatever reason, reject the truth. And because of that, uh, darkness overtakes them. Now that is a coming apostasy, but that apostasy takes place even in our day not on the wide scale wholesale level that we where is that is going to happen. But Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 12, he exhorted those people who had seen all kinds of miracles that he had performed. And he said, for a little while longer, the light is among you walk while you have the light that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes while you have the light, believe in the light. Why? In order that you might become sons of light. So when a person hears truth, to do nothing with that truth is to really harden their heart. Today is the day of salvation. When you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so when we do not respond to the voice of God as heard in the word of God through the preaching of scripture, we are hardening our hearts and darkness can overtake us. And so Jesus goes on and says, Uh, Well, John writes parenthetically first, for though he had uh, performed so many miracles or signs among them, they were still not believing in him. And then he reminds us that the word that Isaiah the prophet had foretold 
was being fulfilled. Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so he says, for this cause, they could not believe. And, and he describes the judicial judgment that God brings on such unbelief. Therefore, he, God, blinded their eyes. He hardened their heart, lest these people with their eyes in their, you know, perceive and believe. So there comes a time when, when God judges people. Paul, at the end of Acts chapter 28, is dealing with Jewish people who day after day came in to hear him when he was under house arrest there in Rome. And he quotes the same passage of scripture uh, that Isaiah spoke and that the Holy Spirit gave him. And he reminds them that there is a judgment. Jesus spoke of this same thing in the, in the uh, parable of the sower. And so he, he warned people that, you know, you have to do something. And the problem is not with the message. The problem is with your heart. And so he, he describes those who I hear the word, but, you know, it's choked out with the worries and riches and pleasure of this life. And it brings no fruit to maturity. And the devil is actually given permission in some cases as in the second soil to take away the word that they may not believe and be saved. Um, so there is an urgency, so to speak. So when we uh, share the gospel with people, we are not only to give them the message, we are to call the, to them to make a decision or to call them to respond. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. They're stacking up here. Indeed, we did have a question uh, that we wanted to get to from Rosemary, who writes, I need spiritual guidance in the area of my marriage and church attendance. I left a church that helped me grow spiritually to attend my husband's family church. Under his family's pressure, I left my comfort zone. My husband's grandfather headed the church, but before his passing, he left his daughter head of the church. While I know they love the Lord and preach his name, they also err in letting a woman pastor a congregation, and they also teach you need to be baptized for salvation. I know this is wrong, so I left and went back to the other church. Because of work, my husband is only able to attend church once a month. One Sunday, I went to my church, and my husband went to his family's church. It was awkward and may have caused marital strain. I want to submit to my husband and be under his spiritual leadership. In the past, he said he wants me and the kids to go to whatever church I wanted, but now he wants me to go to his family's church. What should I do? Well, Paul said this in Romans sixteen seventeen. Now, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. Again, there is a concept of biblical separation. I already read earlier from Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And so if someone is preaching a message that's contrary to the one delivered by the apostles, they're not to be received. They are to be rejected. And God is very specific um, he, he tells us, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. What was a factious man? Someone who came into the church and introduced error in the place of truth. And that really is heartbreaking to the Lord. Just read the opening verses of Galatians and you can see that truth is echoed. I'm turning to one other passage here. Uh, in first Timothy six, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. 
but he has a morbid interest in controversies and questions and disputes and so on and so forth. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, you, you've told me it's one thing that they have a woman pastor, which obviously is a clear violation of the word of God. Um, God hasn't stuttered on this issue, and it doesn't matter what some so-called evangelicals, and, I, and I'm reluctant now even to use the word evangelical because it's become so watered down, and it has taken on, you know, so many facets of meaning. Um, I, I like to use maybe the term serious Christian, the serious born-again Christian, or the Christian who takes God's word as the final authority. And it's not rocket science to know that a woman shouldn't be a pastor. Let a woman uh, receive instruction with submissiveness. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And he gives two reasons, going back to the creative order and how the fall unfolded. And then he goes on, remember the chapter and verse divisions are artificial and they can be distracting at times. Then he goes on and says, basically, well, if a man is supposed to be the one doing the teaching when the church is gathered in the worship service, because a woman can teach, she can teach other women. In fact, she's supposed to. Uh, She is supposed to initiate the discipleship process with women. That's not a responsibility God has given to men. There are some things only women can do, and there are some things that only men can do. But he then goes on to say, if a a man is going to pass through the church, what should that man look like? And then he gives the qualifications for an elder. And if you know the word elder, overseer, bishop, pastor, uh, they are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Uh, Speaking of the same office. And so... He's he's very, very clear here that he must be this, he must be that, uh, he must be the husband of one wife, and so on. He uses all these male pronouns all the way through because he's talking about a man. If you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be an elder, but she can't. So, again, the Bible affirms that men and women are equal, but while they're equal, they are complementarian in their roles. Uh, they have different roles that they play, and uh, God made that clear, whether it's in relationship to the family or to the church. So one, right off, you got a red flag, but there's a bigger red flag than that. And the bigger red flag that you raise here is that this church is teaching that you have to be baptized for salvation, and that is gross error. Any church that says... You must be baptized in order to be saved is preaching another gospel. Remember, they'll come. They'll preach in his name. They may even do a miracle in his name and cast out a demon in his name. That doesn't mean they're a Christian. He will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And so Paul says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for another message, for a different gospel which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, these Galatian believers were not rejecting the message of salvation by grace through faith. They embraced that. But as it related to their sanctification, they were starting by grace. They knew you could not earn your way to heaven. You could only be saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But they're trying to be sanctified by self-effort. And what was throwing them off were these false teachers 
who were presenting a different start. And so they were applying it with a different growth method methodology. And so Paul says, look, there's really not another gospel. There's only one. But even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached, let him be accursed. So what were they doing in the Galatian church? They were adding one work, not a hundred works, but just one work to the finished work of Christ. And that one work, of course, was circumcision. And they said that in order to be saved, this was of necessity. So Paul says in Galatians 2, if while we, if, but if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Um, and then he, he goes on and he makes it very, very clear that I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So he's making it very, very plain that a man is not saved by any deed because if you add even one deed to the finished work of Christ, you're basically saying what he did was not sufficient and you're saying his death was in vain. And so righteousness does not come through the law. Um, the issue today is not circumcision. In many churches, it's baptism. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. And they take some verses and they rip them out of context. When I see um, a church in their doctrinal statement, like typically your Christian church denominations, like Southeastern Christian Church or whatever it might be, uh, and they have Acts 2.38 quoted in their doctrinal statement around water baptism, then typically, and they usually add Romans 6.4 to it, then they are teaching baptism as a means to salvation, which is another gospel. And so when these people are coming under deep conviction and they say, what shall we do? He says, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Not in order to be forgiven, but because you're forgiven. And the word for is a Greek word that does not mean in order to, but because of. Uh, the same word is used in a different context, but with the same sense when they repented uh, at the preaching of John the Baptist, uh, meaning because of his preaching, they repented. Same little particle that's used here, translated for, and we can use it that way in English. I don't give you a trophy or an, I don't give you a, a medal for your bravery. That is in order to be brave, but because you are brave. And so when Peter says, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, he's not saying that baptism is what brings you into Christ that initiates that forgiveness. Uh, only the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection, has the power to save you. In 1 Corinthians 15, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, in which also you are saved. Okay, great. You made known to us the gospel by which we can be saved. Well, what is the gospel? For I delivered to you as of first importance, which you would expect if the gospel is the way we are saved, then you would think that would be the priority message that he would give. And it was for I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures that he was buried. He was raised how all according to the scriptures. So the gospel by which you believe, by which you are saved is defined very clearly as being the death, burial and the resurrection of Christ. There's no mention of baptism here. In fact, if you read, let me turn back here to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. 
He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 1.17. What does that verse tell you? It tells you that Paul separated baptism from the gospel. In other words, he's saying the principal reason Jesus sent me wasn't to baptize people because baptism has no power to save you. The principal reason he sent me was to preach the gospel. Now, Paul baptized people and he baptized so many he couldn't remember uh, all the folks he had baptized. And with that said, baptism is not a part of the gospel. So you're, you're attending a church that is preaching a false gospel that is preaching what Paul calls another gospel, a different gospel, which is really not another gospel because there's only one good news and the good news is specifically defined And twice over in that section. He said, if someone comes to you preaching a different gospel, even if an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches to you a, a different plan of salvation, where that maybe they add baptism as this church is doing. That person is to be accursed. Now, Paul wrote that under the inspiration of the spirit of God. And the Greek word for accursed is anathema. Uh, it carries the sense of let him be damned to hell. Wow. What a statement seems rather unloving. It's really not because Paul knows that error needs to be dealt with in a very firm fashion because when people are preaching a message that will lead people to hell, you can't put up with that. So when you go to this church that is teaching baptism as part of the plan of salvation, then you're sitting not only a woman under a woman who shouldn't be teaching. And of course, one of the reasons Paul gives in first Timothy two as to why a woman shouldn't be a pastor is that when she steps out of her God given role, she's easily deceived. And you could say the same as a of a man. If you step out of the will of God as a man, then you open yourself up to deception. But he's reminding specifically from history, one, a woman shouldn't be a pastor because of the order of creation. It was not Eve who was first created, but it was Adam who was first created. Why was she created? To come alongside and to to help him, to be his complement. She's in many ways like the Holy Spirit who comes alongside and he's our helper. He, the Holy Spirit doesn't do it for you, but he comes alongside and he helps you to accomplish the plan and will that God has for your life. And our wives come alongside and they are our helpers. So he reminds them of the order of creation, but then he reminds them of the fact that Eve took the role of the man. She was the one uh, taking the leadership role when she interfaced with the devil. And when she did that, she was deceived. It was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve. Adam, he wasn't deceived when he committed the sin. He sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew precisely what he was doing. It was Eve who was deceived. And so when this woman pastor steps out of her role, then she opens herself up to deception. Now, obviously, she's never even been saved because if she really believes that baptism saves and she's preaching another gospel, has never really embraced the true gospel. Because understanding of the gospel precedes conversion. So now for you to take yourself and your children to that church that is preaching a different gospel is to disobey what God says. So there is a time when a wife shouldn't submit to her husband. And I appreciate your spirit in asking this question. You know, there are times when you may not agree with your husband, but it's not a moral issue. 
Um, he wants to buy this new boat, and you think it's a stupid decision. But it's not ultimately a moral issue. It could be, I suppose, but uh, maybe it's just a, a, a dumb game plan. Maybe you need to pay the mortgage off on the house before you buy the new boat. Uh, but he wants to buy it, and you say, husband, well, look, you're the head of our home, and I love you, and I respect you, and I respect your leadership, but God gave me uh, to you as your helper, and I think you're making a big mistake. And then when he falls flat on his face, maybe the next time he'll listen to you and be more careful to pay close attention to what you have to say. But this is not that kind of issue. This is an issue of biblical separation. And I read you three passages, four passages of uh, that plainly teach biblical separation. So what you might do is uh, get my handout on what the Bible says about baptism and work through that handout with your husband. Now, if he knows that they teach baptism saves, maybe the big problem is he's not saved. Uh, so this is an important issue. So I'd get my handout on what the Bible says about baptism. I sat down years ago and I said, what is every question people have asked me over the years about baptism? And I wrote them all down. Everyone you could think of. Uh, why are not infants baptized in the Bible? Are infants ever baptized in the Bible? Doesn't matter what mode, whether you sprinkle or pour or immerse, or uh, does baptism play any role in salvation? And on and on and on. And I deal with all the basic questions that people have. In fact, we ask people before they are baptized to read this booklet. We won't baptize them unless they're Christians, but we want their baptism to be meaningful and we want them to be educated on baptism which when they read the, what the scripture says about baptism will make theirs all that much more meaningful, but it'll also a good opportunity for them to respond to questions people might ask them. So they invite a family member to their baptism and they say, well, why are you getting baptized? We baptize you as an infant. And so they can respond intelligently. Or why are you getting baptized? You got baptized when you were 12. And then you can say, yeah, but it was on the wrong side of my conversion. Uh, and so this is, a really important issue. So you need to be going to another church, but I, my, my counsel to you would be to get the handout. And when the kids are in bed and you can have a quiet time with your husband to go through that handout. And I would specifically focus on the question, does baptism play any role in our salvation? And that's where I would give my attention and I would walk through that. And if your husband, by the time he's done, is convinced, oh, it doesn't, this plays no role, and that this is actually a different gospel, and therefore, based on the scripture, where to separate, then he's going to break his emotional ties uh, and his family ties to do what God calls to be right. So... All right, 525-1859. That's area code 843. And uh, we have a question that came in a few minutes ago. It was dictated. The caller would like to know if there's anything a Christian relative can do to make sure that a young male relative who has been physically and emotionally abused will still believe in a loving God and not become bitter against him. Are there appropriate scriptures to teach him? And would you recommend Christian counseling? Well, yes, I, I would. Now, you know, just be aware of the fact that if you go to a Christian counselor, to a pastor or to some Christian counselor and you reveal that the child has been abused, let's say he's been sexually abused, then know by law that counselor is responsible to report that person. 
And if they don't, the counselor can be arrested. The pastor can be arrested. Uh, We talk about, um, you know, pastoral confidence, but the law does not allow it to go to sexual or physical abuse. So if a child is being harmed or if a child is being sexually abused and a pastor knows about it, then he is responsible at that point to report that individual. So know that on the front end. With that said, um, I think it is important that you help this child to understand biblically what God says. Um, I have a sermon uh, from first Peter chapter four that might be helpful to you. Let me read a few verses from that. Peter in this section reminds us that there's different kinds of suffering that people experience. He said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, when he comes again, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is saved with difficulty, and and if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So he's reminding us that we are to entrust ourselves to God, who is a faithful creator. And when we walk with the Lord, there are three kinds of potential suffering that can come upon a believer. He deals with two here. One is called carnal suffering. The other is what we might call Christian suffering. And there's a third that's called common suffering. Common suffering is the kind of suffering you experience just for living in a fallen world. And so there are um, great floods right now in the South that are overcoming places in Louisiana and Texas and other places. And thousands of homes are underwater or halfway filled and That's common suffering. That's because you live in a fallen world and Christians and non-Christians alike experience that kind of common suffering. Jesus spoke about that because some would take it and turn it around and say, well, they're being judged of God. Well, not always. Sometimes there's just common suffering that comes on the world because we live in a fallen world. Oh, that tower that fell and toppled on those people. They must have been big sinners. And Jesus said, well, no, that was not the issue at all. But you you are a sinner and stop pointing your finger at other people and you have a need to repent. So there's common suffering. Then there's what we might call carnal suffering. Carnal suffering is the kind of suffering we bring upon ourselves because of our sin or some other sinner brings on us. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. If you're a Christian, you name the name of Christ. Don't break the law Uh, because number one, you're not above the law And a Christian who breaks the law. If he decides, well, I need some money and I'm going to go into Walmart and steal. He's going to suffer for it. I think of a guy that I led to Christ and he was a personal assistant to the president of the United States. 
And then he got in his head some stupid thing, and he started stealing from Walmart. It was a very clever way in which he did it, not the typical thing. You know, put something under your coat. I won't go into the specifics, but he suffered because of it. He was a Christian, a real Christian, and he did that. Uh, So we're not to suffer for that reason, but sometimes we suffer because of someone else's sin. So you're driving home and some drunk driver crosses the lane and he hits you and your baby's killed or you're maimed or hurt for life. That's not because of your sin. That's because of someone else's sin. That's what we might call carnal suffering. And the third kind of suffering is what we would call Christian suffering. It's the kind of suffering that you experience because you name the name of Christ. And he said, if that's what happens to you, you're blessed. Jesus told us that in the Sermon on the Mount, did he not? That we should rejoice when men say all kinds of evil against us falsely because great is our reward in heaven. God rewards us for it. So we can rejoice in suffering that comes because we're living for Christ. So your son who's been abused needs to understand this. Uh, that God's love has not changed for him. He needs to understand that the Lord loves him unconditionally, that God actually hates what abuse he has experienced. And he needs to understand that. So the only way to really help him is to, one, lead him to Christ, to help him to understand the love of Christ. And if he has come to Christ genuinely real, in a real life-changing way, then he has the mind of Christ. And as you begin to open up the scripture to him, then you can help him to understand what God says about suffering that we have in this life, sometimes because of another person's sin. And it's not that God didn't care about that. He cares deeply. Uh, we already read this morning from Second Thessalonians chapter 1. There it was Christian suffering and all these saints who were under tremendous persecution because they said Jesus was Lord. And let me just read it again. He said here in verse five of second Thessalonians chapter one, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. He said, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction. Those who afflict you. What is he saying? He's saying there is coming a day when God is going to make every wrong right. He doesn't do that now because if he uh, worked in the, um, the man who's drunk behind the wheel and turned the wheel in a different direction so it didn't hit you, then he'd be taking away man's free will. But God doesn't do that. Part of being made as a free moral agent is having real genuine free will. So the, these problems are going to be corrected in the future when God will give relief to you who are afflicted, namely when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And he's going to deal out retribution to those who don't know God. But that's really what eternal life is. It's knowing the Lord. And he warns that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line and Gene from Warwick, Rhode Island writes, Pastor, I've been very troubled trying to understand. Did Jesus tell us that the church in the future would also have the same power and authority and have the same power of the Holy Spirit? If this is what he said, and I believe he did, why are we not seeing this manifested today as it was in Acts? What is on my mind is where Peter says to the crippled man, silver and gold I have none, but what I have I give you. And he says, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, and he does. 
Why are we not seeing that today, even with great men of faith in our country? And then when we're told there will be a great outpouring of the Spirit in the end times, and we know we are in the end times, uh, what can I do as a reborn Christian to receive the fullness of the Spirit? I fast, pray, my life is in the Lord's hands, I'm living as you describe. The Lord is leading me, but I'm really concerned as to why we're not seeing the true book of Acts. Well, there are certain things that are unique at different times in spiritual history that are not normative for every age. Was uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you know, Johnny come lately in terms of getting in on what God's plans were for their life because they never did a miracle? No, Uh, Joseph never did a miracle. In fact, there is no one, no individuals that God does a miracle through until you come to that place in Israel's history where, where Moses steps on the scene and God does miracles through Moses. And after he dies, as the mission is completed, uh, he finishes those series of miracles through Joshua. And then hundreds of years go by and there are no miracles done in Israel until Elijah and then his protege, Elisha, steps onto the scene. Uh, Elisha, if you remember, asked for a double portion of Elijah's power. And it's interesting that he does twice as many miracles as recorded in the word of God as Elijah does. But then hundreds and hundreds of years go by until the apostles step on the scene and, and Messiah himself. And there we see a whole cluster of miracles. And really the next big cluster of miracles are going to take place during the time of the great tribulation period. For instance, there are two witnesses who will do tremendous miracles. Some think they are Moses and Elijah. We'll study this when we come to the revelation after we finish Daniel. Um, But my point is, is there's never been a consistency of miracles all the way through the history of God's dealing either with Israel or today with the church. With that said, there are some miracles that were unique to apostles or to apostolic delegates. Why? Because there were certain signs and wonders and miracles that would accompany the ministry of an apostle. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, in verse 12, Paul speaks to these who said that he wasn't, you know, a really true, genuine apostle. And he responds by saying, well, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you. So these people came into the Corinthian church and said, well, you know, Paul wasn't one of the original 12. He's not even an apostle. And he says, no, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Now, listen, if everyone could do the signs, wonders and miracles that Paul performed or God performed through Paul, then his argument would be meaningless. But then some will take the verse that's found in John 14 and verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, who believes in me, the works that I do, shall he do also in greater works than these shall I do because I go to my father. What did he mean by that? Um, What does Jesus promise when he promises greater works? Well, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, you know, they did a few special works of healings and miracles like Jesus, but nothing on the scale of what Jesus did. So what does he mean by greater works? Well, I mean, what could be greater than making a blind man see or having the deaf to hear or the lame to walk or giving life to those who are dead? Though they mimic some of these miracles. You mentioned the one, you know, silver and gold I have not, but in the name of Christ, get up and walk. But what would be greater than these physical miracles? Well, spiritual miracles, spiritual works. 
And Christ's disciples did physical miracles as his apostles, as his representatives. But he said, I'm going to do, you're going to do greater works than I did. And they did. Um, they saw spiritual miracles to an extent that Jesus never did in his day. The, the greater works were not greater works in terms of uh, quality, but really in quantity. The greater is not greater in power, but it's greater in extent. I mean, just think about it for a moment. On the day that Peter preaches one sermon, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 sinners were converted in one day. Uh, A few short days later, he preaches another sermon, and 4,000 heads of household, excluding women and children, are saved. Maybe 20,000. Some put it at 25,000. So on the day of Pentecost alone, more believers were added to that little band of followers than during the entire earthly ministry of Christ. And one day we see a literal fulfillment of these greater works than Jesus promised. And it was not that Jesus could not do them, but he designed not to do them in that way. Um, So he does the greater works through his apostles. So for you to think, well, you know, we need to do what the apostles did. And that's a real display of, of power. Well, think about what Jesus said, even of John the Baptist. He said, there was never a man born of a woman that was greater than John. But then he'll go on to say the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. How so? Because John didn't have the same kind of new covenant relationship with the Holy Spirit that we have today. As new covenant believers, we have a unique relationship to the Spirit that John didn't know because he died before Christ actually died, ascended, and sent the Spirit in the way that new covenant believers can know the Lord. Did John ever do a miracle? Never. Never one. John the Baptist never did a miracle. Yet Jesus said there was never a man born of a woman greater than John. So uh, I think the emphasis here is one that is often misconstrued in our day, that we measure spirituality by some of these outward uh, physical works. And the greater works that Jesus spoke of, because his apostles mimicked some of the miracles he did, but they did never did any greater physical miracles, and they certainly never did them on the same level that he did. And yet he said they would do greater works. He's talking about spiritual works. And God's people can continue today to do those spiritual works because the greatest miracle that can ever happen to you is the miracle of conversion. And if you're uncertain whether Christ is your Savior, come Thursday night, this Thursday, uh, to Community Bible Church at 715, and I'll be explaining how you can know that you know that you know that you have eternal life. Thursday, this Thursday, this is a live show today at 715. Uh, you call Community Bible Church if you need directions or go to the website at communitybiblechurch.us or just show up at 715 and I'll explain to you the greatest miracle miracle that can ever happen in your life. It would be my honor to do that. We're out of time. Rick, great to be here as always. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 